Morning, Christ Church. Um, you might have already noticed the service started in a little bit different way. The liturgy is a little bit different, and that's because today is a Confirmation Sunday. Some of you are aware of that. That might even be why some of you are here. You know somebody, and you're coming uh, to support them. And, uh, but after the sermon, we'll move straight into the confirmation, and confirmation service means we have our bishop with us, and we have Bishop Todd Hunter, um, and Bishop Todd has been our bishop for many years now, um, but it's been a while since he's been with us in the context of a Sunday morning worship service and done our confirmations. It's been since before COVID. So um, many of you will know and have met and recognized Bishop Todd. Others of you have come in the past few years, and uh, this will be your first uh, chance to, to see or hear from him or, or even meet him after the service. But I'm really thankful for Bishop Todd and your leadership. And I just want to say how, as a priest in his diocese, I feel incredibly blessed and privileged uh, to be pastored by Bishop Todd, led by Bishop Todd. He has led our diocese um, so beautifully. And in the church and in the culture, the past few years, it's been tough times. It's been tough times to be a leader at any level in the church and uh, with all that's been going on. And, um, and through those times and even before those times and to this day, um, your, your steady hand, your faithfulness to God, your love for his church, uh, thankful for your leadership. Bishop, would you come on up and love to pray for you and for all of us. Father, thank you for Bishop Todd. Thank you. Uh, you have called him into your service and the service of your people and this role for such a time as this. And Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon him, even as he speaks about your spirit. And uh, would you fill him right now, this morning? Would you fill us? Would you allow us, Lord, to have tender hearts that are tuned to what your spirit has to say to us? In your name we pray. Amen. So good morning, Christ Church. I just think in listening to you, Cliff, we have kind of a mutual admiration society because Cliff was a longtime Episcopalian and Anglican. I wasn't. I came into the Anglican world out of the Jesus movement. If you've seen that story, the movie going around right now, the Jesus Revolution. I'm from Southern California. That was my that was my childhood. You're watching if you saw that movie. And um, so when I became an Anglican, I kind of wondered, well, what's what's a really good like. Bible-based, evangelistic, Anglican church-like, and I met Cliff, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, I don't know, it's been a while, and came to Christ Church for the first time 10 or 15 years ago and thought, oh, that's like what a really good Anglican church is like. So that's how I hold you guys in my mind. Even though I haven't seen you in a while, you've always been sort of iconic to me. All right, our passages this morning alert us to this notion of baptism, and specifically baptism in the Holy Spirit. So what is baptism? Baptismo, that Greek verb, just means to be immersed in. So when you think of water baptism, you can picture people going under the water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're after, immersed in that water, they are baptized. Well, the long Christian traditional history is is then at some point, when you've come to your own adult understanding of faith, you're then confirming what happened to you at baptism, and in a sense, not joining the church in that sense, but like joining the body of Christ in the church's work in the world. And to do that, you have to be immersed. This time, not immersed in water, 
but in a really mysterious, cool way, immersed in a person. They were baptized, our text says, into the Holy Spirit. And our readings maybe invite us to pause just right here and to wonder, what are our lives immersed in? I mean, just for fun, we could say, well, they're immersed in Instagram. Or they're immersed in doom scrolling. Or, you know, whatever, I'm just playing. I'm not down on social media. But you could just think for a moment, what, well, what actually is my life immersed in? Like, what, what is my intuitive sense of meaning? Like, what, seriously, like, what's the thing that I'm in? And it would be intuitive to think of things like, well, I'm in my family or I'm in my career. Again, those aren't bad things. But what makes meaning of whatever you do for fun on social media, what makes meaning of you as a human being, what makes meaning of you as a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister or a business owner or somebody who punches a clock, I guess you don't punch clocks anymore, whatever you do with technology these days, that only comes to its most essential meaning when being in Christ, in the Father, in the Son, is what first makes us something before we show up on any human spot. Are you feeling me here? We bring something in our humanity to friendships and marriages and workplaces and recreation. And the vision of the Bible is that we would be people who would be immersed in the person and work of the Holy Spirit and then bring that immersed reality into our life. So the biblical pattern for this, the biblical model, is the son to the father. And Jesus throughout his life illustrated through what he said and did his sense of being immersed in his father. Right? So Jesus would say things like, I only say what I hear my father saying. So if you're questioning my teaching, well, I'm just telling you the father's speaking through me. Or when Jesus would do things on the Sabbath or otherwise break ritual law and people would be confused about it, Jesus would say, well, I only do what I see my father doing. He said things like, the son can do nothing on himself, only what the father gives him to do, or the son has not come to do his own will, but the will of the father. He was representing what it means to live a life in public that is previously and most importantly, like firstly immersed in the Father, and out of that relational reality, you see the public Jesus. Are you feeling me here? That's the model for the church to be living her life out of this previous immersion in the person and work of the Spirit. And that's why you pick up this thread of narrative in our passages today, where Jesus said to his first friends, it's really important that you stay in Jerusalem. That you don't go out into the world because you're not yet immersed in this reality. So before you go out into the world, you need to wait for the promise of the Father. For not many days from now, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the vision here is, is that your Christian life, <clears throat> not some like specialized or um, pure life that will come later. You know how we sometimes wish our lives away? Like, well, things will be better when I graduate from high school, or things will be better when the kids are out of diapers, or things will be better when grandma or dad or whoever in the nursing home finally gets through hospice and dies. You know, we'll be out of that era, and we tend to wish our life away. 
thinking that there's some kind of special life that's coming in which it'll be easier to follow God and and be a part of what he's doing. And that's never going to come. You take your actual life as you presently know it. You're eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work, walking around life. You are invited to place that into the spirit and ask the spirit to put himself in you. Well, why? What is so important to Jesus about this sending of the Father? It's this. The purposes of God in you require a power sufficient to that purpose. And this is where sometimes sort of pop Christian theology goes wrong. I mean, nobody really intends it. It's inadvertent. But we sometimes, if we're summarizing our Christian story, we, we might be tempted to say something like this. Well, I, I you know, came forward in a meeting or I said the sinner's prayer or something, and now I'm going to heaven when I die. And underneath that is the notion that God's really angry at sin and our sins separated from him and we need reconciliation, we need regeneration, you know, we need those sorts of theological ideas and we get that through Christ. And so we would tend to summarize the Christian life by saying... Um, I am now saved through Christ, and I'm going to heaven when I die. And that would be, right? Wouldn't that be just a common way of explaining the Christian story? Well, where's the Holy Spirit in that story? Nowhere. Zip, nada. Why? Because that story doesn't involve an imagination for your actually life as you presently know it. But as soon as you bring purpose into the equation, and not just salvation... But if you ask the previous question, why did God create human beings? And the answer is Genesis to be his cooperative friends, technically to rule and reign with him. When he calls Abraham and creates Israel, what's the point? For Israel to be his people, to bless the whole earth. Are you feeling me here? If you're going to get in on that story, if you're going to be God's cooperative friend, seeking to live a constant life of creative goodness for the sake of others, that can only happen through your life being immersed into the person and work of the Spirit. That's the narrative that these texts mean us to hear today. And you have the antecedent uh, or the, uh, the previous existence of it in Ezekiel talking about God bringing Israel back to life. Why? There's nothing in there about going to heaven when you die. It includes that, of course. But it's to be his cooperative friends on the earth. And that's what confirmation is all about. As I said to the confirmands before we came into worship this morning, what I'm going to intend in a minute when I sit in my chair and lay hands on these young people, my intention is that they would genuinely be filled with the Spirit, that their life would get immersed in the third person of Almighty God. We're not talking here about a power. We're not talking here about some sort of ability or capacity merely The Holy Spirit is a person. The gift of the Spirit is the gift of a person who comes with gifts and fruit and authority and capacity, yes, but we cannot reduce the third person of the Trinity to something utilitarian, right? Something merely mechanistic. No, we're actually placing our life, our present life, young or old, sick or well, good boss or bad boss, prospering or having a hard time economically, our actual life, we take it and we immerse it in the third person of Almighty God. And we then, we thereby say, you are what makes primary meaning of my life. And then that primary meaning I take into high school 
or I take into college or graduate school or my career or my marriage, my, my child rearing, but I'm taking a self there. There's no way of doing your life without being a self. The invitation this morning is, is do you want to take a spirit dripping, spirit all over you, spirit like just washing over your life where you're actually immersed into the third person of the Trinity? Because that's what it takes for you to actually be God's people as he wants you to be. But let's get real. Let's get real here for a minute. What happens that challenges many of us is some of us like me come from charismatic and Pentecostal circles. In my earliest days, I was the president of vineyard churches. So if you know anything about vineyard churches and vineyard stuff over the last 20 or 30 years, <clears throat> I mean, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything called charismatic that you can imagine. There's nothing any of you have seen this weird that could top my stories, trust me. <clears throat> so I've seen it all. So I have genuine empathy, sorry, I have genuine empathy when someone says, I don't know, Todd, this, like, come on, this doesn't make any sense. Cloven tongues of fire, what the H-E double toothpicks is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 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 come on. Or the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Like, you know, what does that mean in a world of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi? Like, if a mighty rushing wind went through here, would the Wi-Fi stop working? You know, I mean, like, what is this? We just, we can't kind of grasp what it is, but... Whatever it is, it's super important that you get this, and not just for this text, but for any text in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament were at least as smart as you. I'm serious, because sometimes we don't think they are. I mean, they didn't go to Princeton, yo. I did. I didn't, really. But you know what I mean? <laughs> that was way too blue blood for my, my upbringing. But you know what I mean? Like, we, we tend to think because we do have some fundamental um, knowledge of what a router does, that we're smarter than these guys. And that is not the case. Look at me. They had every bit as much ability as you do to represent life as they knew it. They were not stupid. They weren't writing BS. They weren't just writing mystical little stuff. They experienced something where they saw something that they likened to cloven tongues of fire. They felt something that they likened to a mighty rushing wind, but something real was happening there. This is not just there to be, give grounds for the assemblies of God or something, you know, or to give grounds for the Foursquare Church or the Vineyard or some charismatic or Pentecostal group. And so what I want you to get right now, this is so important, is that if you come from a place where you're kind of reeling or maybe even a little hurt, from charismatic or Pentecostal excess, you have my deepest and full empathy. But here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit is as easily grieved by being ignored as he is by excess. The answer to wrong use is not no use. The answer to wrong interaction with the Spirit is appropriate interaction with him. And I know for some of us, this is just a challenge. But I want to tell you just a couple of lovely things to help you maybe get past that. What's happening here is the disciples are panicked because Jesus has said he was going to leave them. So their fear is the fear of being orphaned. So when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, what's, he, what's the backdrop? What's the question he's answering? What's the fear that he's getting at? 
being orphaned. And so he says, don't worry about it. You're going to have presence. You're not going to be orphaned. You're going to have presence. My presence is going to stay with you. But in the way that, like, this is stupid, but pretend for a minute I'm Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is saying to them, essentially, hey, you 12 here, you know, how I've been with you like body to body. And we've sat around campfires and cooked fish and handed them to each other. And I've mediated my presence to you through my body. But now, you 12, there's going to be this global church of billions of Christians of every nation and language and tribe and color and ethnicity. There's going to be this beautiful thing that God's doing. And my presence is now going to be manifested to them through the Spirit. So God is still going to be with his church. God is still going to be with you. But as I'm crucified resurrection, resurrected, ascended to the Father. Don't panic. You're not going to be orphaned. You're going to feel me with you. Even as I felt myself with the Father, I will be with you. And that's why it's so important. Like, if you think of the passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you know, thinking of Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham, the creation of Israel, he's thinking this story of a new world being born. He's thinking of God's creation finally restored and the new heavens and the new earth. That's what you're invited into. And can you see how that now makes kind of religious consumerism silly? Like, it's not okay to say, well, you know, really, I'm an Anglican, so I'm liturgical. But, well, okay, I guess I'll take a little bit of the Holy Spirit. As if we expect God to be impressed by that. Oh, well, thank you. Just <laughs> make sure it's not too much now, <laughs> you know. You don't want to be fully immersed. Maybe just dip your toe in, you know. Be safe, because what if you can't trust God? Do you see what's actually underneath that? What if you can't actually trust? Well, then, okay, deal with that. That's all right. Seriously, if that's where someone is, like, I'm just not sure that I can entrust my life to being fully immersed in the Trinitarian God, that's okay. That's a process of faith that everybody goes through. I would just say, ask yourself, why? What's the blockage? What's... What's happened? What is it you need to deal with? And, and deal with it with your clergy and your small groups. And this is what church is for, is to help us get to that place where together we're immersed into the work of God. So being filled with the Spirit then, it's not an idea, it's not a proposition, it's not a bit of doctrine, it's not pneumatology. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we're meant to know by experience. So you may not be really clear theologically about, well, when does the Spirit come? Does it come at conversion, or is it a second work? You may not be clear about how you know if you're filled with the Spirit, like do you have to speak in tongues or not? Okay, you might not be clear about all that, but all of us need to have clarity about this. Is my life inspired by the Spirit? That's personal knowledge. That's the deepest sort of knowledge. It radically transcends borrowing Cliff's book on, or one of the clergy's book on systematic theology and reading 30 or 40 pages on pneumatology. That's fine. That's helpful to understand what the church historic has thought about the person and work of the Spirit, but that is not nearly the same thing as my life being inspired by him. <clears throat> Eugene Peterson really helps us see this in a, a book he wrote called Eat This Book. I know, that's Eugene for you. <clears throat> and I love this illustration he uses. 
where the picture is, think of like a 14-year-old boy or girl or something who's you know, getting pretty, pretty, proficient, pretty proficient on cello. And he says, so picture that sort of person who can give an accurate but wooden performance of, let's say, Mozart's violin concerto number one. Peterson says that's very different than a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perlman. Well, what's the difference? Because Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by his technical skill, playing in tune and playing in time, but it's that he represents what Mozart composed. He wondrously enters into, do you hear baptism there? He wondrously enters into, he, he puts himself into, he baptizes himself into, and then conveys the spirit and the energy, the life of the score. We have a score that's put in front of us, a narrative. It has its own notes and its own time signature and its own other musical notations and it invites us into it, but not in a wooden, I know the right things, I don't know, I could pass a theological pop quiz. Okay, that's fine, that's better than not, but the invitation is to wondrously, as Peterson says, enter into and to convey the spirit and the energy that's in this score. Which then just raises the question, like, okay, Todd, how do I get in on that? And the way we get in on it, my imagination for this comes from the end of the book of John, the Gospel of John, where it says that Jesus breathed on his first friends and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word there for receive is actually take. It means to receive, to actively lay hold on lay hold of. One of the old translations has it, be ye getting. And you can understand it by how in a moment when we come for Eucharist, you come like this, right? You're actively saying, I want this. I want to lay hold of this. I want to receive what's being offered to me. I want to receive. So the beautiful imagery of this passage is picture Jesus exhaling on you. And we're meant to, like if he was blowing up a balloon, we're meant to inhale what he's exhaling so that our lives become filled with the Spirit of Christ, filled with the third person of the Trinity. This is the exact same Greek construction that Jesus uses at the Passover table, where in a moment, Father Cliff will say, take, eat, take, drink. This is the exact same Greek construction. Take the spirit, accept with initiative. Let your will be involved. Let your desire be involved. Let the current structure of your wants be involved. That I want the spirit. I want to live a life that's immersed in the person and work of the Trinity. So the last little bit. You think of the passage in Luke 11 where Jesus has been given... Um, parables of prayer. So there's the parable of the persistent person, and then there's the ask, seek, and knock. And then finally, at the end of Luke 11, you have Jesus saying, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? But remember what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. All we have to do 
is to desire from the deepest parts of our heart, soul, will, mind, emotions, that we want a life animated by the Spirit. We want to be like Perlman, whose lives enter into the very life of the story that God is writing and that it wants to write through the church so that we take what he's giving. We inhale what he's exhaling. We welcome it. We receive it. We say we want to catch the wind. We want the wind of the Spirit to move us wherever he wills. I want to come with childlike surrender. That's the invitation, especially for you confirmands, wherever you are. But it's the invitation for all of us as well. Amen.